Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and what we've seen through the coronavirus chaos is a full court press on your perception. It started with the circulation of images of people dead in the streets of Wuhan, China, piggybacked on grossly exaggerated computer models, led you to believe there would be no hospital bed if anything happened to you, so you best stay inside and created the illusion that every other living person is a walking, talking bioweapon just waiting to see your mask slip or your six-foot bubble penetrated. And with the fear level deep into the red, they offered the only solution allowed on the table, the rush-ordered experimental magic shot that quickly showed itself to not be all that magical. But large segments of society are still faced with some very tough decisions over it, and the system seems to be so aggressive on this that creepy and obsessed are understatements. Well, one thing I've been very thankful for during all of this is that despite the narrative that there's only one professional opinion, just outside the scope of the state-sponsored and industry-dominated news cycle, there have been many brave doctors and medical professionals willing to risk it all just to tell the truth. And the leading organization committed to these truths and the preservation of medical freedom is without a doubt America's frontline doctors. And with us today is the Associate Medical Director of America's Frontline Doctors, Dr. Richard Ammerling who is also a licensed nephrologist or kidney disease specialist who has been practicing for over 30 years. And at the height of the pandemic in New York was working with the earliest and sickest COVID patients. Few people we could talk to would be more qualified or better positioned in the thick of it all to give us a truly informed and expert opinion on this stuff, and I'm very thankful to have him here. A literal frontline doctor, commendable kidney specialist, and COVID narrative dismantler, Dr. Richard Ammerling, welcome to the higher side. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. This is a serious pleasure. I know a lot of this audience is going to already be past the dismantling of the COVID narrative, and they say the brainwashed and fearful masses can't be reached with logic at this point. But I am unwilling to give up, and I'm hoping that your credentials and Dr. Simone Gold's credentials are enough to make some people think twice if they have an interview like this one presented to them. So to do it right, we got to start with those credentials. Tell us about your own career as well as Dr. Gold's and what America's Frontline Doctors represents. Sure. Well, I graduated medical school in 1981, and I had a traditional 
classical scientific medical education. I then did internship and residency in New York and fellowship in nephrology, that's specialty training in nephrology in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. And then I worked for most of my career at Beth Israel Medical Center, downtown Manhattan. In 2016, after a hostile takeover by Mount Sinai Hospital, I decided it was time to change careers, so to speak. And I took a position teaching medicine full-time at the St. George's University School of Medicine, which was down in Grenada. And I taught there, having a great Caribbean lifestyle. When COVID hit, they closed the in-person aspect of the school. Everything switched to online almost overnight in March of 2020. And in April, I went up to New York and volunteered as a nephrologist at Bellevue Hospital and Manhattan VA, where I had friends who were kind of struggling with the onslaught of kidney injury associated with the first acute wave of COVID-19. And I worked there until through August, and then eventually found my way back to Grenada. And they were still really in a lockdown mode. The university decided to impose a vaccine mandate, which I was afraid that they would do. I argued very strenuously against it. And unfortunately, it was not successful. So I got sort of cashiered, placed on administrative leave, actually, and came back to the States where I ended up gravitating towards America's Frontline Doctors, which is an organization that I admired greatly and was actually supporting up until then. And I formed a relationship with them based on mutual interest and doing some research assignments for them. And one thing led to another. And now I am the associate medical director running around the country, going to meetings and doing all sorts of things that I never imagined that I would be doing at this point in my career. I'm sure, but I am happy to know you are out there being honest about your thoughts on this whole thing. Not easy these days. The media has been really aggressive about creating the perception that if you have any reservations or any differences of opinion on this thing, well, you're the only one and it's only quacks and disbarred doctors looking for attention that are saying anything negative. Now, we know that's not truly the case, but because of that aggression, it's still hard for people to get an accurate feel for the climate and which way the wind is blowing. Maybe you can help us out here. What more could be said about the size and scope of America's frontline doctors at this point? It's actually quite large. I'm told that there are something like 800,000 members. Now, these are not all physicians, obviously. We do have probably a thousand or so physicians who are members, but the membership has grown dramatically since I've been involved. So the organization is impressive. Yes. And what could be said about Dr. Gold, the founder's credentials, because she is getting attacked quite a bit in the media, but she's an impressive lady. I admire her so much. She is a fearless warrior. And one of the things that interested me in America's Frontline Doctors was that she perceived immediately that this was not just a medical issue, that this was a threat against our constitutional freedoms. And that is exactly what it has turned out to be. It's been an assault on the free market, on our democracy, 
The Bill of Rights are pretty much all gone at this point. There are very few things that we can do the way we used to do before. I'm here in an airport lounge. I just flew on an airplane where, of course, you have to wear a stupid mask that doesn't do a damn thing to stop viral spread. But they are insistent that you wear this stupid piece of junk, if you know what I mean. And here we are living in a very unfree United States of America. And we're better than most of the rest of the world. So, so this is what I admire so much about Simone Gold. She's been fearless. I know she's attacked all the time. I'm hoping to deflect some of those attacks. Like, come on, take me on, if you will. I've been around the block a few times. I have a career history with the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. This is a group that has been speaking out and protecting independent medical practitioners for several decades, going back to the 40s. Mm. So I'm familiar with the enemy, shall we say. <laughs> and I'm well prepared to take them on. And this is part of what I've been doing. Right on. So a colleague of yours asked if you could lend a hand in New York's Bellevue Hospital because you are a kidney expert and they were seeing a lot of kidney failure. What was the scene like when you started helping out and when did you realize that there was something off about how the story was being presented versus the reality that you were experiencing? Well, it was extremely stressful and what can I say? It was somewhat terrifying, actually, taking care of these extremely sick patients. And we were all kind of scared about getting this disease. We had N95 masks that we put on in the morning and didn't take them off all day. Some of us put extra masks on top of that. Whenever we went into the rooms with patients, we gowned up with PPE. It was impressive, to say the least. And these Patients were extremely sick, blood clotting issues constantly. The ones that we were dealing with were particularly ill because they had kidney failure and we had to provide dialysis for them. What was unbearably sad was that these patients were suffering alone. There was no one in there with them except us occasionally and the nursing staff occasionally. But no family members could show up and be in attendance. And that was horrific to watch people dying with no one around them. This has continued. There is still a no visitation policy around the country. And this has to end. There is absolutely no justification for it. It's a cruel and unusual punishment, if you will. But when I realized things were not correct was after the ICU emptied out, I would say in by June, certainly, of that year, the fear and the fear-mongering by the media and the city and the state continued. And it should have ended because there was no more COVID. We had peaked, crested, fallen off the curve, and we had herd immunity in New York. And the whole thing should have ended. We should have gone back to normal. But they kept everything locked up. Restaurants were shut, outdoor dining only, eventually people walking around terrified in masks. And I realized that this was not what it was laid out to be, that this was a political move for authoritarian control. And that was actually the intent of it. I mean, that was imported from China. China put out this 
called PSYOP, showing people dropping dead on the street, which we never saw. Right. We never saw in New York. Okay. It was all a PSYOP to terrorize people. The media played along. The WHO played along. The lockdown became established. The lockdown actually occurred after the viral spread had peaked. So it was completely ineffective. It just was harmful and, of course, continued the terror. And that's when I realized that we were being scammed. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you came to help in April. And by the end of May, early June, the ICUs were emptying out and you knew that something wasn't right. And I'm interested in your expertise as a kidney disease specialist, because one of the counter narratives we've heard is that people were going into the hospital and the treatment protocols of ventilators and remdesivir were causing more death. And I've read papers at this point that suggest both remdesivir and ventilators can induce or contribute to kidney failure. And just as you said, People were dying in hospitals, but we didn't have a lot of people that I know of dying alone in their home, dying on the street while walking the dog. It seemed like most of the death was in hospitals, which, of course, you're only going to go to the hospital if you're in a severe state. But I've heard you say that COVID itself can cause these same problems, so it gets to be really difficult to distinguish. But in your expert opinion... What do you think about this idea that the treatment protocols were responsible for a significant portion of COVID deaths? Well, a lot of the deaths were nursing home patients, and that was evident early on. And of course, we know the story there that they were ordered into nursing homes, COVID positive patients left the hospital still positive, were ordered back into nursing homes by Governor Cuomo and other governors. It wasn't just him. It was several of the blue state governors did the same thing. And other leaders around the world did, too, in the UK and Italy. So that is also suspicious. But the treatment protocols certainly were not great. Of course, we were flying blind. There was very little that we really knew. And there was constant chatter and communication with doctors around the world who were treating on the front lines in the ICU setting and trying to figure out what to do. We learned, for example, that putting people in the prone position helped their ventilation and helped us to keep them off the ventilators for longer. We realized that the ventilation wasn't a success. Almost 90% of the people that got put on ventilators in our institution died. The kidney failure issue was pre-remdesivir. So I can't say that this was caused by remdesivir because it wasn't even being used at that point. Remdesivir was approved, I, I believe, for emergency use back around October when our whole situation had resolved itself. So COVID itself and the multi-organ failure that goes along with very severe COVID, the cytokine storm, blood clotting, can cause kidney failure. And we didn't do any kidney biopsies during this period to see exactly what was going on because it was too risky, frankly, in terms of bleeding issues. So we were just kind of struggling with it and treating it empirically with dialysis. But the ventilators themselves don't particularly impact kidney function. I mean, positive pressure ventilation does cause sometimes an impairment of the return of blood into the chest and therefore into the heart. So it can compromise the ability of the heart to pump blood. But we don't feel that that is a huge contributor but they were so sick, and so I can't really 
lay the blame on any particular drug or treatment protocol. A lot of them came in already at the early stages of kidney failure. Mm -hmm. So the disease for sure can cause that. Well, I have heard you say that in terms of remdesivir, it didn't seem to show a lot of usefulness. Like it wasn't really clear why this was the protocol because the data they were using to justify it as a protocol didn't seem all that strong. Would that be accurate? That's correct. And this is in a way typical of what I've now been talking about lately, which is how EBM, evidence-based medicine, has been used in a tyrannical and anti-scientific way. Remdesivir is a crappy drug, let's be honest, okay? It was fairly effective in terms of reducing the length of hospital stay in their best trials that they could produce. And of course, you know, when the pharmaceutical companies do a study, they control everything about it. They control the data, they control who writes it. Sometimes they write it themselves, they control where it's published. It's their study, and you have to take every pharmaceutical sponsored trial with a very large grain of salt. And this was certainly true with the remdesivir trial. And even at its best, it was not changing mortality. So there was never a compelling case to use it. It may inhibit viral replication, but typically, I mean, actually only being used in the hospital setting well after viral replication is on this way out. So it was never going to have an effect on hospitalized patients that was positive. So therefore, any kind of risk of adverse events shouldn't be tolerated. And we did, and it became an established protocol. There were financial incentives for giving remdesivir. It had to be given in the hospital setting. It might have made sense to administer it in the initial stages of disease, but that's never been done. So we're only seeing toxicity with no benefit. And this is awful medicine, just awful medicine. But this is what the protocols, or shall we say guidelines, do. They give everybody the same treatment. And it's one size fits all. And that's what we're seeing. And that's part of the tyranny of evidence-based medicine. Yes. Evidence-based medicine, EBM. This is one of the major things I wanted to have you talk about, because if we try to reverse engineer how we got here pre-COVID with our medical system being so strictly owned by corporations, this is a really big deal. And Evidence-based medicine is a major factor. I believe there are also a few other factors, but talk to us about the road that got us to this situation in modern medicine, which is not ideal. Well, I was focused on this going back to the early 2000s. Why? Because I'm a traditionally trained scientific physician. And when I first started to see guidelines practice guidelines emerge in the early 2000s in nephrology, because that's where I was working, of course. I was immediately suspicious, and I thought, I smelled a rat. This can't be good. We don't need guidelines. We know how to think. We know how to reason. We can evaluate the literature. We don't need this stuff. And of course, the guidelines, which I looked into in great depth, are produced with the help financially, usually, of industry, pharmaceutical industry, the panels that write the guidelines are heavily represented by so-called key opinion leaders 
who are physicians that are paid by pharma, either as speakers, consultants, or research grants, and they are there at the behest of pharma. I haven't seen a smoking gun email attesting to this, but it's the only possible conclusion why the vast majority of these panelists all have industry ties. And the industry funding of these guideline panels is well established. They may fund them directly or indirectly, but they're behind it. And so they use these panels to push their drugs. So it's a form of marketing. And instead of advertising to patients, which they also do, by the way, not very effective, what they really need to target are physicians. So that's why they used to come around to your office, offering you a free lunch, taking you out for dinner, whining and dining you to get you to prescribe their drugs. Well, they started to see that there was going to be pushback there. So they discovered this whole EBM process where they felt that they could use this to create guidelines based on EBM studies. And what are the EBM studies? Well, the top level form of evidence that they talk about are the randomized controlled trials, where you have placebo group, you have a treatment group, large number of patients, randomized, so you take away any kind of bias in the selection of the patients, and you give you know, half the patients the drug, half the patients the placebo, and you look at the results. Now, these studies have been around for a long time. They're hard to do and very expensive to run. They cost millions of dollars to run a large randomized trial. So who could do these studies? Well, the pharmaceutical industry. So it automatically biases the playing field in terms of pharma-sponsored drug trials. And that's largely what has come to dominate the medical literature. And they largely control that too. I mean, they control the major journals through heavy advertising, through ordering of reprints. They pay off a lot of the editors and the whole process is corrupt. And this is what the guidelines are based on. So if you're basing your guidelines on pharma-sponsored trials, you're going to have a bias towards treatment of everything, heavy, heavy treatment. And you can, don't take my word for this, look it up yourself, go to the National Heart Lung Blood Institute website and look at the financial disclosure page for the people that write the cholesterol guidelines, for example. Okay, every one of them, except maybe one, has a long list of pharmaceutical sponsors that they have to declare. So don't take these cholesterol drugs. The information that they are providing is biased. It's mostly junk science. And these drugs don't help and they're actually harmful. Right. And I've heard you talk about evidence-based medicine in the context of they're basically setting up this hierarchy of evidence where personal experience and anecdotes are at the bottom and and peer-reviewed papers, which are obviously manipulated, as you just laid out, are the gold standard. And what this does is undermine the doctor-patient experience, undermines that relationship, and that is a very important relationship that used to be kind of the backbone of of medicine, right? Sure. And it devalues the experience of your five senses and your brain. When you are seeing a patient, for example, when I left Grenada, they had a small COVID outbreak. And my colleague down there took care of patients in the hospital who were sick. They had pneumonia. They were sick. 
He gave them all hydroxychloroquine. Every one of them walked out of the hospital. So when you have an experience like that, it's very informative. Is it not? You know the drug works. These patients were on their way to being ventilated and dead. They got turned around by a drug. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. So when I saw, for example, that Pierre Corey was talking about the value of ivermectin, Pierre worked with me for years at Beth Israel in New York. We were good friends and we worked together treating patients in the ICU. He was in charge of the ICU as a pulmonologist intensivist. And when he came out endorsing ivermectin, I knew 100% for sure that the drug is effective and safe. Because I know Pierre, and I know that he had experiences where he actually saved lives with the drug. And when you have those experiences, you do not need a randomized controlled trial in order to proceed. And that is crucial. So the people who are in charge of, say, the CDC, the NIH, they say, ah, we can't use these drugs without a randomized controlled trial. This is just anecdotal evidence, and they poo-poo it. But it's incredibly powerful, real-world evidence that the drugs work. And this is the way we always used to practice medicine. We took care of patients based on science. What is the scientific plausibility that a certain treatment might have antiviral mechanism of action? We knew that for hydroxychloroquine. That's why Didier Raoul, who's a brilliant physician, brilliant researcher, picked hydroxychloroquine to use. He didn't just pull it out of thin air. It was based on solid science. And as long as a drug is safe, and we know that hydroxychloroquine is safe, it's been used for 60 years, billions and billions of times with minimal side effects, then why not try it? Okay, this is how we practice. And then the doctors who were on the front lines treating patients are the ones you go to and rely upon to share their experience and their expertise and their knowledge. And this is what should have happened. All these doctors who are on the front lines, Didier Raoul, Pierre Corey, Vlad Zelenko, Peter McCullough, Brian Tyson, Richard Urso. The list is short, but impressive. These are brilliant doctors who were courageous and who took their obligation to treat patients very seriously. They would not just leave them to languish untreated at home until they couldn't breathe. That's not good medical care. That's abandonment. And I am calling out any physician listening to this. If you're sitting on your hands during this crisis, you're betraying your Hippocratic oath. I'm sorry. You do not deserve to be called a doctor at this point. Mm. Man, and another factor in the road that got us here seems to be this gradual takeover of independent medical practices by corporations. Most used to have a private practice, but now 90% of doctors are associated with the hospital. And with that, I understand that that's where following the protocols becomes such a big part of the job. It seems to parallel something we've talked about in education where they don't have uh, the autonomy they used to have. And now they're kind of beholden to a digital lesson plan. They're less teachers and more facilitators of centralized corporate software. At least that's the direction that schooling is going. And it seems like with doctors, it's there's a lot less autonomy 
And it becomes more of this, well, you're really just a facilitator of this protocol handed down from on high. Maybe people are worried about, you know, the litigiousness of medicine and that if you stray from the protocol and try to do something that you know works, you open yourself up to liability that doesn't exist if you just follow that protocol. But this corporate dominance and the fact that doctors don't have truly independent practices anymore is a huge factor, right? It's very important. And this is something that I have been pushing back against, obviously unsuccessfully, for almost my entire career, mostly with the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. And I remember doing an interview with Betsy McCoy, who was the Lieutenant Governor of New York, and he's a healthcare advocate and expert, where I was asked, what do I fear most about Obamacare? This was in the, like around 2009, 2010. And I said, I fear the loss of physician autonomy, that doctors are going to be told how to practice medicine, that it wasn't enough just to pay for medical care at a central level. They want to control medical care. And that's exactly what happened. And they did it through guidelines, through evidence-based medicine, which became tyrannical. And then the gradual moving of physicians away from private practice into hospital or clinic setting where they are not directly responsible to their patients financially, where they're getting paid a salary and therefore have to toe the line. And if the hospital or clinic or health system says, you give everybody remdesivir, well, you better give it. If you buck the system, you're going to be out and you're going to be easily replaced because they have made doctors into replaceable cogs in a big machine. And doctors have gone along with it. And I'm sorry to say that medical education is not what it used to be. I mean, I went down to St. George's University hoping to be able to have some input into the education of the next generation of physicians and teach them what it really meant to be a doctor instead of a guideline pusher and someone who's you know just prescribing pills to everybody without any real consideration of risk versus benefit. And I stress that at every lecture. I try to introduce an elective course, okay? I didn't want to change the curriculum. I want to give an elective course to the students, giving them an alternative to the guideline-based approach to care that was based in real science. Well, it got voted down. They wouldn't accept. I couldn't do it, okay? So the medical education has, I think, been dumbed down. I hate to say it, but it's true. The basic sciences are compressed into such a short time period that it's truly impossible for even a very smart student, and there are still a lot of smart people going to medical school, but it's impossible for them to really get a feel for it in depth so that they are not able to think for themselves and think outside the box and be creative and use their understanding of pathophysiology and disease, natural history, and pharmacology in a creative way and give each patient an individual consultation visit that is going to serve their needs. Mm -hmm. So they've been conditioned in a way to accept the guidelines. And I know this for a fact because this is what young doctors tell me, right? That they don't really, they're waiting to hear from these bodies like the NIH and the WHO. 
they're paralyzed. They cannot really act as independent thinking physicians. And I think it's mostly this and also the fear of being fired, right, if you step outside the line mm -hmm. that has enabled this horrific response to this disease that we have seen. Well, that is a great breakdown of a lot of the problems that got us here. Another one, now this isn't something I've heard you talk about, but I was recently talking to a doctor about how she felt what problems exist in the medical sphere. And we were talking about, I guess, insurance reimbursement that goes to the doctor. And her issue, the way she framed it is that these payments are based on final diagnosis when they should be based on chief complaint. So it's like when someone comes in with a certain thing that they want treated, if you don't diagnose them with uh, certain severe conditions that come attached to a bunch of prescriptions, then you really don't get paid sufficiently as opposed to you should get paid based on making someone's chief complaint go away, not necessarily how many diagnoses of X, Y, or Z you can come up with. Are you familiar with what she might have been getting at and this problem within the system? Well, there's a game of coding that is played. And this is mostly the people who work in the doctor's office who get involved in this. And they know that certain codes for diagnoses are paid better than others. So that's probably what she's talking about. But the real problem is that we are paid by third parties. We are no longer paid directly by patients. So eventually, he who pays the piper calls the tune, and the payers get to control the way you practice. This is what I've been fighting against for my entire career. Mm -hmm. And the only way out of this for doctors is to divorce themselves from third-party payment entirely, entirely. Set up this sort of practice where you are going to be paid directly by your patient and there are more and more doctors who are doing this, the DPC movement, direct patient care. No middleman. You administer a service to a patient, you see them in your office, and you get paid a fee. And the fee is not exorbitant, okay? The fee is modest. And this is how you, number one, provide excellent high-quality care where you are accountable directly to the patient who's paying for your service, and you cut costs because when patients are paying themselves, they don't overuse. They use what they need to use, and that's it. So the whole third-party payment scheme is behind a lot of what's wrong with medicine today. And the only way to fix medicine is for doctors to abandon third-party payment 100%. And I'm happy to say that more and more are doing it. Yes, I agree. And in terms of solutions... What is America's frontline doctors or anyone doing to help correct this problem of EBM and corporate dominance? Are there networks out there that you could name that people should be looking at for their primary care or any other just ways to kind of make sure that for ourselves, for people who are on this page ideologically, they can find the right type of doctor and the right paradigm that it works for us? Well, we have partnered with the telemedicine group to offer early outpatient treatment options to patients who either have or are afraid of getting COVID-19. 
But beyond that, we are actively planning to open clinics. Okay. AFLDS is going to get behind a group of clinics, and these will be third party payment free. And doctors will be empowered to practice good, high quality medicine without depending on guidelines. They'll be able to practice Hippocratic medicine, putting the patient's interest first, and going back to the traditional principles of medicine do no harm, balance risk versus benefit. In everything that you do as a doctor, you should be having that sort of equation and trying to individualize care to the greatest extent possible and restore good health. We shouldn't be managing disease. This is the current model of medicine is to manage patients' numbers, right? Not even disease, but treating their numbers to get the numbers better so you get paid a little bit more in these payment for performance schemes that the insurance companies and the government have imposed. Instead of doing that, let's talk to the patient, let's spend time, let's find out what their lifestyle is like. This is what used to be called, by the way, holistic medicine. But this is actually the way medicine should be practiced. What does the patient eat? Every interview I have with a patient, I get heavily into their diet. Why? Because diet is at the root of most of our medical conditions now. Yes. You know, diabetes is treatable, curable by diet. And if you get on the right diet, you throw away your insulin pens. So that's, you know, where I hope medicine is going to go. And AFLDS is in the early stages of looking into actually doing this. Well, that is great to hear. People often recognize the problem listening to shows like this and conversations like this, but they aren't really given a ton of solutions. So I really love what America's Frontline Doctors is doing. People have asked me, where can I get hydroxychloroquine? Where can I get ivermectin? I'm like, I'm just a guy who asks questions to people on a podcast. But America's Frontline Doctors is a big resource for that, that people should be aware of because you do that telemedicine you mentioned. You do help people connect with the treatments that seem to be working outside of the box, right? Right. I mean, we will hopefully be doing our own research, you know, based on our clinic experience, as opposed to depending on pharma-sponsored research, which I now just disregard, frankly. I just don't trust it. And this is one of the things that is shocking, frankly, about the rapid emergency use approval of the so-called vaccines, that they are shoddy pharma-sponsored trials, completely controlled, written by the pharmaceutical companies involved. And I simply do not trust their data. And for the FDA to not have required access to all the source data from these three companies is a shocking dereliction of duty. And it's not a small thing because this is a needle in every arm in the world campaign. This is get a shot into every person on the planet based on three very shoddy pharma studies. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is outrageous. And people have picked apart these studies. It's not hard to do. 
Okay, Peter Doshi is doing a great job of it at the BMJ and others. So the data even that they present is awful. <laughs> so mm-hmm. why? I mean, the drugs don't work. Let's put it simply, they do not work and they probably never have. And I can just imagine the panic meetings at Pfizer where they put together their top scientists and said, guys, how do we put lipstick on this pig? Right? How do we make this look good? And of course, they came up with this whole vaccine efficacy using a relative risk number of 95%, when the actual risk reduction for the Pfizer vaccine was 0.7%. And no one has told this, of course, when you go in for your shot. There's nothing even closely, even resembling informed consent. No one would take the shot if they knew that those were their real odds of getting improvement, 0.7%. Ridiculous. Yes. This is something I had written down to ask you more details about, but it's one of the major tricks they use to manipulate the data is using this term relative risk as opposed to actual risk. And whether we're talking about the jabs or many pharmaceutical drugs, this is a trick to game the numbers, right? Totally. The first example of it being used was in a landmark study on cholesterol lowering with a drug called cholestyramine. It was done back in the 80s by the Lipid Research Council, and they had no benefit in terms of mortality from these drugs. And they had a small decrease of maybe 1% of incidence of heart attacks And they manipulated this by using the relative risk reduction. So how does that work exactly? And by the way, the other big offender here is Pfizer. And Pfizer pushed their previous blockbuster drug, Lipitor, by using the same relative risk reduction shenanigans. So let's say you have two groups, 100 patients in each group, placebo in one, and Lipitor, the other arm. And you follow them all for three years. And at the end of the three-year period, 3% in the placebo group suffer some sort of heart incident, whereas 2% in the treatment group suffer a heart incident. So you could say that there was a 33% reduction in the incidence of heart tax, right? Going Mm -hmm. from 3% to 2% is 33% reduction. But the actual risk reduction was 1%, which is clinically irrelevant. It means the drug does not work. Mm -hmm. And that is what happened with the shots. An absolute risk reduction of 0.7% means these drugs are clinically irrelevant. They don't work. And as Peter McCullough has said, and others have said too, you would not expect them to have make any impact on the epidemic. And they haven't. They haven't. And they're talking about breakthrough cases. Yeah, there's zero protection from the shots. Zero. Right. Which is becoming more and more obvious. And then it becomes silly that they're talking about boosters while at the same time trying to get the unvaccinated vaccinated. So they have this weird catch-22 of trying to convince the unvaccinated that these shots are necessary to go on with your life, while also convincing the people who have gotten two shots that they need a third. The logic doesn't make a lot of sense in that case, but I did want to ask you more about the jabs, because 
at this point, everybody's made their mind up. You either already did it months ago or you aren't doing it. And maybe getting fired is the one thing that like makes you acquiesce. But a lot of people are still being quite stubborn on that. Well, now that we have more data, it seems like, than we did, obviously, at the beginning when the jabs were introduced, I don't think anybody would be made more confident by what they've seen over the last six or eight months. Not only does it not really do much, but it also opens you up to new risks, apparently, with myocarditis. We have athletes. Some of them are dropping and their careers are over. They're asked not to talk about it. The sketchiness of being able to just have an open and honest conversation that some people are injured is not breeding confidence at all. But even if we've made up our mind that we're not getting it, we all know many friends and family that have gotten it. What should we know about the potential damage that might happen to our friends and family? I mean, is it a small amount? Can you give us an overview of the damage you think these shots do and the timeline in which, you know, is someone ever out of the woods, so to speak? Yeah, that's a tough one, Greg. I mean, first of all, we know that because there is no benefit, no benefit in terms of the actual effect of these shots in blocking transmission, which was supposedly what they were going to do, they've never been shown to block transmission. They were sold on the basis of reducing serious symptoms of disease, not blocking disease, not saving lives, not blocking hospitalization, simply reducing the number of serious symptoms, which is a very soft endpoint, shall we say, and very easy for the companies to fudge, you know, to be honest about it. So because there's no benefit, then you should tolerate zero risk. And the other aspect of this is that the vast majority of healthy people are at no risk of dying from COVID or essentially no risk, 0.003% or so. And children, zero risk statistically. So there's never a rationale to give them any risk at all, any exposure to these products. And no one can say that we know the long-term effects of these products. Can't, right? The phase three trials are still ongoing. By the way, because these companies crossed over, unblinded the study, and they crossed over their placebo group to get the shots, there is no longer any way to know anything about the efficacy or safety of these drugs because the placebo groups are gone, okay? So it's now you take it or leave it. Now, there is variability in the response to the shots. There has to be because the mechanism of action is convoluted to say the least. So these lipid nanoparticles must gain access to cells in your body. The cells have to take them up which is not a given, and then the messenger RNA payload has to be taken up in the ribosomes of the cells, and the ribosomes then have to produce the spike protein, which then has to get exteriorized onto the cell membrane or ejected somehow into the circulation, and thereby provoking these antibodies that are supposed to then protect you against COVID infection. So that's a lot. It's a lot of steps that these shots have to go through. So it's very likely that many people who got these shots never produced spike protein. Let's hope, let's hope 
okay? Because it's a spike protein that is pathogenic in the disease. So the whole mechanism of action of these shots is a major problem. Why would you want to produce a pathogenic protein in your body? It makes no sense at all. So those are the lucky ones who did not produce uh, spike protein. And how would you identify them? Well, one way to do it would be to check their antibodies, which, of course, no one is interested in doing because they don't really want people to know that these shots were completely bogus and didn't work at all. So no one is really interested in checking antibodies. But if you or anyone had the shot, you should check antibodies. See if you have them. I advise people to check antibodies to see if they were had prior infection or prior exposure. Many have. I believe that the majority of the country has been exposed, particularly to Delta, which is highly contagious. So what are the long-term effects? You know, I'm praying that they're not as bad as some think they may be. Impact on fertility could be a major issue. Like we're only just starting to get to the point where we would see that because the drugs have now been in use nine months plus, right? So that's a major concern. Are there going to be autoimmune diseases increased down the line? Will we have cancers increase? Because there is good evidence that these shots interfere with immune surveillance mechanisms that keep us safe from cancer cells. So there are many causes for concern. All the more reason to reject the shots, even if it costs you your job. I'm sorry to say, do not take these shots. You're putting your life in jeopardy. Mm. Right on. Well, I know we got to start wrapping up. You have to catch a flight, but I Correct. really appreciate your time and your expertise and your bravery to go against the grain on this. I like to think the story has fallen apart and the dream of total control is going to fizzle out before it gets too bad. But I guess only time will tell. And all we can do is keep the pressure on. In closing, what else would you like to leave people with in terms of links or resources, calls to action, or future plans for America's frontline doctors? Yeah, well, go to our website. It's very comprehensive. There's a lot of interesting information there, constantly being updated. So AFLDS.org is the place to go. You can follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Amerling. Until they kick me off, I'm still posting a lot of stuff that's, I think, of interest. I'm also on Telegram and now Signal. So that's where you can reach me. And keep up the fight. Don't give in, okay? You have to be strong now. This is the fight of our lives. It is for the future of our children, and it is for the future of the country, and quite literally the free world. If America falls, the whole world falls. We have to keep America free and strong. Mm. Well said. And I'm always a little iffy on if petitions do much, but StopMedicalDiscrimination.org, I believe, is a petition you guys are urging people to sign. Currently over 700,000 signatures. Is that still in the mix? Yeah, sure. That's pushing back against the vaccine passports to travel, particularly. And I encourage people to write to the airlines, okay? Go on their websites, say how to contact us, send them messages, say, do not impose a vaccine passport and soft sell the masks, okay? Yeah. Don't be walking around telling people you pull it up over your nose, sir, or you get thrown off the plane. They don't have to do this, okay? This is not law, really. It's a regulation. They have to follow it to a certain extent. But soft sell it. 
Yes, that's a great point. There's a lot of things people can do without really putting themselves out there. You don't need to go and speak at a town hall and expose yourself in your community as one of the resistors. You can do a lot of things in private, like riding an airline or writing various people. You can do it from home. No one has to really know, but the message still gets out. I think that's great advice. Yeah, support your local businesses, support your local sheriff, fire department. These are the people that you need to have on your side. Amen. Well, it has been a pleasure. Hang on for just a second to let this upload finish, but thank you so much for the time. Okay, Greg, appreciate it. And I'm sorry for the conditions, but this is the best I can do today. It's all good. Thank you. And I've got to run. Okay. Omicron be damned. <laughs> there we have it, guys. By the way, did you know that Delta Omicron is an exact anagram of media control? Probably nothing. But we're kicking off December right. And I knew that this wouldn't be too radical. And Dr. Ammerling wasn't going to say anything too over the top for this audience, but that's all right. I had the chance to interview the second-in-command at America's Frontline Doctors, and I wanted to take the opportunity. As we all know, there are layers to the rabbit hole, and we have to ease people in slowly. And in terms of there being no wild speculation here, everything being verifiable, Dr. Amerling having such an impressive resume by conventional standards, I think this interview makes for a good, shareable show that really helps to get people to that place we want to get them. He's a top nephrologist who was asked to help out on the front lines of New York, and he's saying the spike in sick people was over by June of last year. A literal frontline doctor. So as we go into December and people are talking about lockdowns again and boosters, I find this to be good ammunition. You sit people down who are captured by the fear, and I think Dr. Ammerling is going to win them over. Because he's very credible and he's careful with what he says. He's not going to say remdesivir and hospital protocols were making the mortality rate worse. But he will say it was a useless drug for the situation and that hydrochloroquine and ivermectin are way better. Well, that's totally fine. I'll meet him halfway on that, too. I know we've done a lot of episodes looking at germ theory versus terrain theory, or miasma, as some call it. I know a lot of people have made up their minds on that and are unwilling to compromise, and those people should rethink that. Sure, keep it up in your mind, but you can still find common ground with a lot of people who, when you check the boxes on the most important conclusions for all this, are in alignment. If a doctor like this is putting their career on the line and being honest about what they experienced firsthand, and providing access to ivermectin to the masses, and being honest about these shots and the global totalitarian operation we're trying to fight against, then they have my respect and my gratitude, and I hope you're with me on that. I thought his breakdown of relative risk versus absolute risk was really great, revealing one of the big tricks Big Pharma plays with the data. If they can have a trial for something where your risk of this or that drops from 2% to 1%, they can legally say it cuts your risk in half. But your risk is already almost non-existent, and you don't need to take that shit. But because of the work their group is doing, I wanted to help propel them a little further and let all those people who have emailed me for ivermectin know where they can actually go to get it. Hop on the America's Frontline Doctors website, connect with a doctor over Zoom, and they'll write you a prescription. 
much like getting a marijuana card on the Venice Beach boardwalk back in the day. And as for the interview itself, I know it comes up a bit short for our format. You know how serious I am about quiet environments and making sure we have the time to get a full interview, and both of those things were a bit of a challenge today. Dr. Ammerling was in the airport, luckily, right as I was about to say, man, we can't do this interview with all this background noise. A private room opened up, and it was much better in there. Then he said he didn't have a full two hours, that he had an hour and 40 minutes because he had to catch the next flight. Of course, with someone as busy as he is, we booked this through a middleman liaison. So I don't fully blame him, but I just thought as disappointing as this is, because we have this format we're committed to, we just gotta muscle through. I'm not gonna push it back to another day, as busy as I've been lately, and we're getting into December where it's harder to book interviews anyway. So I figured an hour and 40 minutes was fine if we didn't waste another minute off air. But then we had some internet breakups because of the airport Wi-Fi. We had to hang up and reestablish the call. And all that takes time out of the actual interview. And so that kind of sucks. But I'm just going to do a 50-50 split between free and plus and apologize that we came up a bit short. But I do have good news in that I also just recorded an interview with a pretty high-profile guest that could only give me an hour. And so you will get a sixth show in December. It was going to be a plus exclusive, but honestly, it's just too important to lock up behind the paywall. We are in a perception war, an info war, as Alex Jones might say. And I think we're seeing a lot of signs that we're actually overcoming the mainstream narrative. But in this bonus show I'm talking about, our high profile mystery guest takes a different angle at it. And he really knows his stuff. And his book is incredibly well sourced. And I want this whole COVID build back better bullshit to end more than I want $8 from a few new signups. We're not talking about Atlantis or alien hybrids here. This is kind of the fight of our lives and the very thing we've been prepared for. So format limitations aside, I still think it's better than shoving ads into these interviews. And I hope both today's show and this upcoming one can contribute in a small way to moving that needle of perception in our direction. Maybe you have a few friends who are starting to turn, and Sophia Smallstorm or Christiane Northrup go a bit too hard in the paint. But maybe they'd listen to this, or our upcoming mystery guest, who certainly has a lot of conventional respect from people. I know for me personally, this is true. I absolutely will be using these two interviews in that way, casually dropping them to a few middle-of-the-road friends saying, hey, I did this interview with a pretty impressive doctor who worked with a lot of COVID patients firsthand. You might be interested in hearing them out. Plus, it's not just an intro to Dr. Ammerling and the things we've been going over for a year, but the entire organization of America's frontline doctors. That can be one hell of a red pill for people. Because a lot of them are conditioned to think there is no other large group of doctors with a different set of expert opinions. So I tend to just look at my own life and see what might help me strategically book an interview for that, and hope that a lot of you could also use it in the same way. So some are for us, and some are for us to use, if that makes sense. But I have a lot of respect for what they're doing over at America's Frontline Doctors. I'm seeing a lot of people fed up with another new variant, and all the booster talk, and the travel restriction talk during the holidays, and I think we're making cracks in the big mono narrative. I really do. How can they say the vaccine doesn't work against this new variant and you also have to get the vaccine? The logic doesn't compute, people. 
<laughs> but that is the show today. Brace yourself for a big one coming up. I'm going to go get working on that edit myself. It's where I'll be doing this weekend. And that's that. Even though the Plus Show is closer to 45 minutes than an hour this time, we still got to some good stuff. The COVID vaccine risks and future fallout, COVID vaccine mortality data from other countries, Dr. Ammerling's bout of COVID in July, current lawsuits and the legal fight, Dr. Ammerling's thoughts on the next few years, the global lockdown data, and a nice little anecdote about Fauci's Spanish flu mask paper. Apparently he knows that masks can become a problem in these kind of situations. But all important material, if you ask me. In higher side news, it seems like the 50% off gifting subscriptions has been a huge success. I really appreciate all of you who decided to give the gift to THC Plus this holiday season and help speed up the spread. It means a lot that you would share this podcast with people because it gets pretty wild sometimes. So that offer is still going for a few days. Hop over to thehiresidechats.com, pick up a gift membership for someone, and you get half off however much time you decide to go with. And hopefully that gets them started on the journey. Lots of good episodes lately. I thought Isaac Weishaupt, Forrest Moretti, and Greg Little were all knockouts. But you be the judge, and I'll see you next time. Your move, pandemic paranoid people, propaganda pushers, and members of the medical tyranny cabal. Your fucking well, they tie that yellow ribbon round the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayer in their hearts. All along thought they were rooting for the home team. As they're sent to the game and torn apart. We twist this tourniquet upon the pipeline that he carries on. Smoking gun in